As we were putting the finishing touches to publish the latest version of Epic Failures in DevSecOps, I reread Jacqueline Damiano's chapter and was struck by how unique her message is. This is a personal story, one that will resonate with many people in the tech industry. It's a story of beginnings, of hardships, of leadership, and finally, how all that combines into something much bigger than a technology solution. It's a story that talks about transforming people, not just companies. What you'll hear in this broadcast is Jacqueline reading her chapter, Making Everyone Visible in Tech. There's no narrator, no discussion, just Jacqueline in her own words telling the story behind the Athena Project. It's a story of how she and her team took a diverse set of 40 applicants from underserved communities with no technical background and created a program to train and place those attendees in the tech industry. It's an inspiring story that needs to be heard. This is the DevSecOps Podcast. The DevSecOps Podcast series is supported by OWASP, hosts of the Global AppSec Conference, June 18th and 19th in Dublin, Ireland. And by Sonatype, home of the free Nexus Vulnerability Scanner. What's hiding in your applications? I don't talk about my past very often. I grew up in a small coal mining town, and when the mines closed, the service sector became the primary source of employment in the community. My family, we didn't have a lot, but we had what we needed. My mom and dad were divorced and they both worked. Before and after school and during the summers, we couldn't afford daycare. So I would spend my time with my grandparents in the housing project where my parents grew up. It was really hard for me to be there. I didn't feel like I fit. It was for this reason and many more that I found a lot of comfort in school. And I threw myself into school. I loved it. It was my outlet. I love learning and I love the feeling of achievement and school provided me with both. I'm so lucky because I've also found the same feeling in my career. I've worked in tech and finance for the past 18 years at some really amazing companies. I'm no stranger to being the only woman in the room. As I've gotten older and more senior and certainly grayer, I've started to feel like the tech industry is getting less and less diverse. The CEO of Treehouse talks about what we need to do in terms of representation to make sure we have diverse teams in corporate America. If we look at the diversity of America, we'd see that 13.4% of the population is black, 18.1% of the population is Latinx, 1.3% of the population is Native American, and of course, half of the population is female. When you think about those statistics, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that the tech sector does not represent America. Today, 7% of the high tech sector in America is black. 8% is Hispanic. Depending on what source you read, between 20 to 30% is female. Most research also states only 18% of engineering graduates are female. The problem intensifies as you look up the hierarchy. 
In the U.S., top 1,000 companies by revenue, only 19% of CIOs are women. Those of us who work in tech need only to look around during a meeting to be confronted with an all-too-real illustration of these numbers. Sometimes I look around an office building and check out the conference rooms. I want to see who's sitting around the table. Do they all look similar? Are they all the same gender? Are they all the same color? If they are, I have this very strong compulsion to want to bust into the room and say, stop. All the research says what you're doing right now, the decisions that you're making, they're biased. You're not coming up with the best ideas because you don't have a diverse set of perspectives. Gender is only the beginning of what it means to have a diverse team. The same goes for race. Diversity is a diverse issue. Now listen, the research on diversity is clear. Diversity isn't just about being nice or noble. Diverse teams build better products, which increase company revenue. In today's economy, companies cannot afford to not be diverse. Many of us are committed to changing the situation. We truly understand that we need to better reflect the perspectives of our diverse customer bases. However, even with all of our good intentions, our industry has had a super hard time creating and implementing a plan to increase diversity in tech. 18 months ago, I was quietly lamenting this issue. Then something happened that completely changed my career and honestly, my life. That may seem overdramatic. It may seem hyperbolic. I assure you, it's not. An epic failure occurred on the team I lead. And that's where the story really begins. At my company, one of the teams I lead hosts a tech day three times a year. These tech days mimic our public DevOps day formats. We bring in external luminaries to speak and we ask our internal employees to talk about their stories of success and failure. These tech days have two distinct goals. One, we're trying to build community within our engineering groups. The second is that we're trying to energize those engineers. We're trying to make them feel excited and remember the reasons that they started working in engineering. In mid-2018, we sent out a call for papers to 1,000 engineers. Guess how many women responded to that call? Well, if you guess zero, or if you've ever heard me give one of these talks at a public event, you're right. We failed monumentally. We failed to solicit a diverse set of speakers. Now listen, my first reaction, it's like, how the hell could this happen? Especially with me at the helm. I am a feminist. I want women to be on the stage telling their stories. What the hell is going on? I'm missing an entire gender of speakers. It's not like I got submissions back and I had a few women to choose from and a whole slew of men to choose from. That wasn't the case. I literally had zero women who responded to this call. I couldn't figure out why. So I started to do research and I'm ashamed to say, I learned things that I really should have known a long time ago. There's this thing called the confidence gap. In studies, men overestimate their abilities and performance and women, we underestimate both. Our performances do not differ in quality. That research came from The Atlantic. Katie Kay and Claire Shipman wrote an article about this that was brilliant. The founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, she talks about the bravery deficit. 
We are raising our girls to be perfect and our boys to be brave, she says. Her point couldn't be more spot on. If we don't encourage our girls to take risks, climb the tree and fall, they'll never experience failure and recovery. And that is a critical skill in business. Women fail because they don't begin is an assertion that Harvard Business Review makes. Men apply to jobs if they meet 60% of the qualifications. Women, we don't hit apply until we meet 100% of the qualifications. Frighteningly, statistics are similar when it comes to promotions. Why don't we see women in the workplace? It's a question that I was asking myself when women weren't responding to this call for paper. So there was another Harvard Business Review article that talked to this, why women stay out of the spotlight at work. It states that there are three main reasons. The first is avoiding backlash in the workplace. The second is that they're trying to find professional authenticity. And the third is parenthood pressures. I learned a lot through my research that helped me understand more about myself, which was awesome. However, this didn't help me at all with this problem I was trying to solve at work. I still had a hard time getting women to volunteer to speak. So I did the only thing that I thought would help. I turned our failure of having a male-driven agenda in my subsequent research into a talk. I added some tactical things that everyone could do to help mitigate the situations. The first thing is women, we need to sit at the table when we go to meetings. We can't call in. We shouldn't sit along the perimeter of the room. We need to claim our voice. We have one. If you absolutely need to be remote, make sure you're sharing your expertise on the phone. Don't stay quiet. Women, you need to be wary of volunteering for unpromotable tasks. Let someone else plan the next team event. Potlucks are not going to get you promoted. Women, we need to help each other. Introduce yourself. Be there for someone else coming up the chain. Men, start nudging your female colleagues to share their stories. People leaders, be a critic, be a coach, be a cheerleader. Try to be all three to the same person. I know that this is super hard, but that's how you scale leadership, and the results, I promise you, will amaze you. At our next Tech Day, I gave this talk that I created as an Ignite. I called it Making Women Visible, and I delivered it in September of 2018. Now, as it happened during this particular DevOps days, one of our external luminaries happened to be Dominica DeGrandes, a personal hero of mine. Her Making Work Visible book is required reading for anybody on my team. Obviously, even my talk title was a riff on her book title. This day, she complimented me on my talk and encouraged me to keep speaking. It meant the world to me. Fast forward a few weeks, and then a woman gave another woman a voice. There was a last-minute opening at the upcoming DevOps Enterprise Summit 2018 in Las Vegas for the Ignite section. Dominica DeGrandez reached out and told me to just say yes to fill that spot. Before I could second-guess myself, I typed those three letters. In October of 2018, I gave my Ignite, where are all the IT women, at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. The response was overwhelming. People were cheering as I spoke. 
When I got off the stage, Jean Kim hugged me. I mean, it was surreal. After the talk, women approached me. They thanked me about talking about the issues we deal with but don't speak about. Some women cried. Men approached me asking how they could help their teammates, sisters, kids, etc. Honestly, I was overwhelmed. I felt elated, of course, but I also felt it creeping in, a sense of responsibility to help change these conditions. But I mean, who am I to try to fix this massive issue? I'm not a diversity and inclusion expert. Some of those people have their triple PhDs in this and have been working their whole lives on that to create solutions that our industry could implement. Who am I to try to fix it? I'm only a believer in this stuff. I'm not a teacher. Then, two days later, our team flew home from the DevOps Enterprise Summit. As our plane landed in Newark, my mentor and boss at the time looked at me and said, you know, that talk really resonated with people. So what are you gonna do about it? The community is looking to you. Oh dear God. I could either do something about this or I could just keep talking about it, perpetuating the inaction that we've seen in the industry for decades. Well, I'm here reading through a chapter, so I guess you could probably figure out that I have a bias for action. Think, you need a plan, a really, really good one. In the coming days, I thought a lot about what I could do that would make a meaningful impact. I might be able to increase female representation at our tech days, but that would be a temporary and localized win. How would little old me be a part of the solution to further diversity in tech? Then, like magic, the light bulb went on. I was at the Grace Hopper celebration in 2018. Mariana Costa Chica, who formed an organization called Laboratoria in South America, was honored for her work in diversifying tech. There weren't enough women in tech in Peru, so she went out to underserved communities to find women who had not just a passion for tech, but had the aptitude to make a great developer. She brought successful candidates into a bootcamp and trained them how to code. Her results are undeniable. She's had over 1,300 graduates over five years. She has a 76% placement rate in companies like Accenture and ThoughtWorks. Her graduates have also experienced a 3x income growth. Her talk resonated with me because of where I grew up. I didn't know what a software engineer was until I went to college. And we all know, if you can't see it, you can't become it. I never had anyone in my life that was in technology. I really didn't know what corporate America was outside of my mom's job. She worked at the Yellow Pages as a graphic designer and dressed nicely to go to her desk job. She worked really hard and gave up a lot of things so that we could have what we needed. My dad, one of the smartest people I know, worked in a machine shop for a decent part of my childhood and then for the government. He now has a master's degree. I worked hard in school because the results felt good. Then, before I knew it, it was junior year of high school, and my dad mentioned an article to me that he had read in the New York Times that covered Bucknell University. A year later, I was accepted. Bucknell changed my life. 
I met friends that made me feel safe and accepted. I studied topics that were interesting and engaging. It took one economics class to discover this was the lens through which the world made sense to me. My friend Emily explained this concept to me to help me understand how I'd know my major when I found it. She was eternally right. Now she's an astrophysicist. In any case, I fit at Bucknell academically. Socioeconomically, well, that was a different story. Many of my classmates were wealthy. They were so well-dressed, so beautiful, so smart, and so refined. I would see the J. Crew boxes come and go in the mailroom. My first job in college was in the cafeteria. I wore a hairnet and I made pizzas. And yes, I do know Adam Sandler's Lunch Lady song. I like to think it was an ode to me during this time in my life. Luckily, that job didn't last too long, and I found an office job on campus. Regardless of my own inferiority complex, I managed to graduate with a 3.46 GPA. I am a first-generation college graduate. I still lament that I didn't graduate with honors. I still can't believe they didn't round. Anyway, off to New York City. Why am I divulging all of this to you, dear reader? A couple of reasons. First, I have a fear that someone may think I'm a privileged person who has a savior complex. I worry that people think that I'm going into communities that I feel sorry for trying to save them. As fortunate as it is that I'm on this side of the story, I feel like I could have easily been one of the people that Mariana helped lift up. Second, some people get squeamish when I talk about working alongside people who didn't go to college or who may have never had a role model who worked in an office. It's at these points in conversations that I've started to have to put on my big girl pants and tell them about where and how I grew up. At the end of the day, I have a responsibility to do what I can to give others a chance, to give people an opportunity, there are too many smart people in tough situations that just need a door. They'll walk through that door if they want it. Trust me, I've seen it. So, what is stopping me from running a program like Laboratoria in the U.S. at the company that I work for? Apparently nothing. Well, nothing except money and sign-off. No biggie, right? I drew up a plan that looks similar to Mariana's program. Number one, we're going to go out, we're going to find a diverse set of applicants from underserved communities that have underlying skills that will make them great developers. The reason I think this is possible is because the barriers to entry in the tech field are low. Mariana talks about this. Stack Overflow's developer survey says that 17% of developers do not have an associate's or bachelor's degree. 25% of those who have graduated from college and are working in tech today, guess what? They have a degree outside of computer science and software development. Given this, I believe we can establish an apprenticeship program that can create solid entry-level developers from a pool of people with limited to no technical experience. Number two, we're going to bring the apprentices in and pay them a living wage during their learning. Number three, we're going to co-locate the apprentices and teach them how to code. 
We're going to use multiple modalities of instruction. We're going to let them learn online. We're going to teach them in person. We're going to do this one-on-one. -on -one. We're going to do group coaching. Eventually, we're going to deploy the apprentices to the line of business technical teams so that they can work in the company's code base. Number four, we're going to provide apprentices opportunities to apply for full-time employment at our company. Now, I mentioned this earlier. When I talk about diversity, I realize it's a diverse topic. Diversity isn't just about gender and race. It's about a lot of things. Socioeconomic status, religion, age, body size, shape, sexual orientation, people with different abilities, cognitive differences, etc. The list goes on and is deep and broad. When it was time to put out a call for applicants, we marketed to all people in hopes that we'd end up with a diverse set of candidates. It worked. Our apprentices are all different, brilliant human beings who ended up, in large part, becoming awesome engineers. This is no time to be chicken shit, Francis. That line is from one of my favorite movies, Under the Tuscan Sun. I oftentimes recall it when I need a little bit of self-motivation and encouragement that the impossible is possible. And so the timing was right to quote this in my own head at this point. I needed money and headcount to get this program running. I called it Project Athena. Yes, she's the goddess of math. At this point in my life, I've had enough of Project Hercules. My brief experience leading a marketing and communications team taught me how important it was to brand this project. Simply stated, the goal of Athena is to enable people from underserved and underrepresented communities to grow into awesome technologists to build products our customers love. Project Athena provides an actionable plan to create a new labor pipeline of qualified, diverse people to work in technology. I put the idea on paper, and by mid-November of 2018, I was pitching it to my boss. I expected him to say it was crazy. The idea was too big. It wasn't the right time. It was too expensive. The list of things goes on and on. Instead, he didn't say any of those things. He said, this is a good idea. Excuse me, what? Yep, it's not too expensive. It is the right time. The idea was big, but good. Wow. During this time, my company was going through some major changes. Selling a plan like this is hard. Selling it when things are changing was harder. These changes, though, presented a great opportunity. We had to hire a lot of people in a short amount of time. Ever spin up a job requisition in tech? Finding the right candidate can take months. Finding many candidates all at once is super difficult. If we had a program to create a talent pipeline where it did not exist, that would help. We could train people the skills that we needed, and then we could plant them as seeds of change in our organization. After my boss encouraged me, I got on our senior vice president's calendar. I was waiting for him to kill it, but he didn't. He thought it was a good idea. He scheduled a meeting with our CIOs in January of 2019. I created a pitch deck outlining the costs and benefits. I told them how I thought this could help with our open requisitions and it could help diversify our staff. They listened. They asked lots of questions. They asked me to work with HR and get alignment. What? I was terrified. I had no relationship with our HR leader and I knew that this was an outside of the box program that would require a leap of faith. 
at large companies, we have a lot of responsibilities and sometimes we get really afraid of jumping. On top of that, some HR employees may construe this kind of activity to be a threat to their position as it deals with talent acquisition. I'm happy to report my HR partners jumped with me and they were enormously supportive. They kept me sane and honestly employed <laughs> during this project. I didn't make a lot of mistakes in this space because they were there helping me understand laws and our responsibilities. At the end of it all, I really have a ton of respect for people in HR. We have it easy with systems. They're dealing with the most complex system ever created, people. In January of 2019, I also took the stage in New York City at a public DevOps Day event. I proposed Project Athena to the audience. At the time, I wasn't sure my company would approve the initiative. I wanted to get an external read on how it would play. The result was one that I've come to rely on from this community, nothing but love and support. Between January and March of 2019, I met with anyone at my company that would talk to me about Project Athena, hundreds of people. I reached out to wildly senior people, C-level, the board of directors, in order to pitch this idea. I learned something super important. The busiest, most senior people always make the time to talk to people. It shocked me. I remember crying when I got a note back from one of the senior most executives in our company expressing his support for the program. All I can think was, I mean, he's a genius, and he took the time to respond to me, a girl from Scranton who worked in the cafeteria during college. How did it come to be that I had a voice someone was interested in hearing? It's moments like these that, sadly, I hear the song Panic at the Disco running through my head. You know the one. Hey, Ma, look, I made it. Definitely not a singer. <laughs> it's just an email, woman. Get it together. I will tell you, through this period of time, I thought the program was dead about a dozen times. Jennifer Wood from London Does 2019 talks about the abyss of despair. Man, I was there a lot during this pitch period. But as Jennifer points out, things always turn around when the idea is the right idea. Whenever I put the plan aside because I was discouraged, I'd get a call or a meeting or a word of encouragement that made me pick it back up. Finally, it was time to get a go, no-go on this project. I needed our CIO to greenlight this. In March of 2019, we needed to make a decision about Athena. We either needed to be all in and to go for it, or we needed to put the project on the back burner. It was during this month that I met with my CIO to ask for his permission to begin the program. He said yes on two conditions. Number one, I needed to source the headcount from each of the other CIOs myself. And number two, I needed to ensure that the passion I had for this project was shared by other people in the organization. I sent an email to our CIO leader teams asking for headcount and a representative from their team that was passionate about diversity. Each CIO showed up. They committed headcount to the proposal and an advocate from their organization. I had the green light. We signed an agreement with a partner to help us make connections with organizations in underserved areas that would help us source the right candidates. In April of 2019, we started recruiting. We decided to recruit 40 people, thinking we'd have a 50% attrition rate through the program. 
For past experience, our only requirements were that applicants needed to have a high school degree or equivalent. We partnered with Workforce Solutions in Texas and New Jersey. We also partnered with the Salvation Army in Texas. 400 people initially applied to our program for 40 spots. Those 400 applicants then went through an online technology course and completed an essay-based application. We selected the top 40 candidates, 20 from New Jersey and 20 from Texas. I'm going to pause here and talk about the enormous lift my team made between April and May of 2019. We had to run all language about the program through HR and legal, application forms and job descriptions. We had to learn the onboarding process and get 40 people through things like background checks within a short amount of time. We needed to get 40 computers, logons, and badges. We had last minute paperwork issues. Who is funding this? What is the budget code? The what? I promise I couldn't believe the power of a one word email from my SVP. Approved. He later told me he just needed to give me sign offs and then get out of my way. I'll never forget that. It's a sign of a true leader. Trust your people. Give them the support they need, then get out of their way. Let them do what they do best. Let them deliver. Onboarding one person in any company is usually difficult. Imagine 40 at once. My dojo operations gurus handled this with grace and poise. I also have to say, sometimes at large companies we get in our own way. But Jeepers, when we all believe in something, it moves and it moves fast. I now have buddies in HR, finance, and legal who are my village. They believed in Athena. They moved mountains for us. It really happened. During the last week of May 2019, we had our orientation kickoff celebration and all of our 40 apprentices joined us on site. I was numb. I had expected to be elated. I think I was partially paralyzed with fear. What were we doing? What if this failed? We immediately needed to put all of our self-doubt aside. On our first day in Texas, we realized that our apprentices had needs we weren't anticipating. Some of our apprentices were facing Maslow's hierarchy of needs issues. We had a few people who were houseless, more were food insecure, some didn't have cars. It was at this moment we realized this work wasn't just work. As one of my CIOs would call it, it was noble work. Few of us on staff had dealt with these issues. We did the best we could, but most of the time we were figuring it out as we went along. We created food drawers in each location that the apprentices had access to for nourishment. We tried to come up with solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Some people had bus rides three hours each way to the office. Some people had medications that they needed that could only be distributed at the shelter during work hours. The list went on and on. We were trying to solve these problems, but inevitably we learned the apprentices, they didn't need us to solve these problems because frankly we couldn't. The apprentices, they just needed someone to listen. It's not a stretch to say we, as the staff, we learned more from the apprentices than they did from us. On June 3rd, we co-located these apprentices in our dojos. 
Dojos are immersive learning centers, permanent physical spaces where on-site coaches work with employees to upskill. A full stack team comes into the dojo with their backlog and we work with them to do product discovery and teach them modern engineering practices. We leveraged our dojo model and assigned coaches to apprentices at a one to 10 ratio. The apprentices spent most of their day learning from a full stack JavaScript online curriculum, especially designed for people with no background in tech. This learning was augmented significantly by the coaches. The coaches did weekly one-on-ones with each apprentice, and then by talking the coaches through the apprentice's code, the coaches would get a good understanding of where the apprentices needed extra help. The coaches would then do reinforcement learning sessions, such as katas, etc. They were working night and day to stay ahead of the apprentices in the curriculum, while also trying to figure out other ways of teaching the points that they were learning. The dojo learning continued through the end of September. At this point, we wanted the apprentices to be placed in line of business technology teams to get their hands dirty with real coding repositories. We held a job fair and made apprentice placements. The dojo felt lonely after they left. The coaches supported the apprentices while they were working with the teams out on the floor. In November of 2019, we posted junior development roles. Our apprentices applied and interviewed for these positions. I'm happy to say that 80% of our apprentices have converted to full-time employees. What we learned. Holy creepers, we are responsible for the livelihood of 40 people. We weren't used to working in an environment where someone's life depended on what we did. This was the first time many of my staff saw the realities of poverty. It was also the first time many of them couldn't just fix something. We all learned that sometimes what we needed to do was just listen because fixing it wasn't something we could do. Crying is okay, even at work, even if you're typically a tough chick or dude. Before Athena, I had cried probably three times during 18 years at work. Now we have a joke in the dojo that we cry weekly. Tears of joy and frustration, all of the feelings. Not knowing what is coming next sucks, but hashtag it's gonna be fine. More often than not, we had no idea how the heck we were going to get 40 people with no tech background to be beginning developers in six months. We didn't know so much, but what I did know, what experience has taught me is that very few things are not fixable. My team will tell you that whenever we faced a big challenge, the words that would come across my lips were, it's gonna be fine. Because honestly, it had to be, we had no choice. 40 people were depending on us. In October of 2019, hashtag it's gonna be fine became a laptop sticker for the staff and I. Because we were braver, we were stronger, and we knew we could do this. We did more good than harm. We were super self-critical throughout the program. Could we teach more effectively? Could we give them more support? 10% of our original apprentices dropped out of the apprenticeship. We couldn't make it work for everyone. However, it did work for 36 people who graduated from the program and now had an experience working in IT at a large enterprise. 
80% of the 36 graduates converted to full-time employment at our company. I like to think that we've changed the lives of those people and their children. There's some irony in my story. Here I am trying to help educate women about feeling like an imposter, like somehow they don't deserve to be successful. Yet how many times in this very narrative did my insecurities come out? Once you see it in black and white, it cannot be unseen. I try to carry that with me. I am more educated now, but I'm certainly not immune to falling victim to the confidence gap. What's next? We have funding for another cohort in 2020. We are looking at how to self-fund through governmental grants specifically earmarked for software development apprenticeships. We are also considering what other areas of our company we can use apprenticeship as a viable model. Conclusion. This is Jacqueline Damiano. Thank you so much for listening to my perspective on how to make everyone visible in tech. There's one thing we need from the community. We all need to invest in making tech more diverse. What does that mean for you? If you're interested in having your company explore a program like Project Athena, please reach out to me and we'll share with you how we bootstrapped our program and how you can leverage our learning to build your own initiative. If you're interested in learning more, shoot me a note via LinkedIn. This is Mark Miller, executive producer of the DevSecOps podcast and publisher of Epic Failures in DevSecOps. If you'd like a free copy of our new book, it's available as a free download. Go to sonatype.com slash epic failures. That's sonatype.com slash epic failures. Epic Failures in DevSecOps Volume 2 is also available in paperback on Amazon. This is the DevSecOps Podcast. The DevSecOps Podcast series is supported by OWASP, hosts of the Global AppSec Conference, June 18th and 19th in Dublin, Ireland. And by Sonatype, home of the free Nexus Vulnerability Scanner. What's hiding in your applications?